Hello, and welcome to our seventh episode of our podcast series, High Reliability, Myth or Possibility. We're glad you're joining us again to examine the claim that many organizations make when they say they are highly reliable, but without any evidence to support that claim, anyone can claim to be highly reliable. Today, we're going to talk about a common process organizations utilize when there is some type of event which needs to be investigated, and that's a root cause analysis or RCA. That versus what we call a collaborative risk review. So today I'm pleased to have Paula Sage with us to talk about collaborative risk reviews. Paul, thank you for joining us. Can you introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your background and what your current role is, please? Sure. My background is uh, I spent 30 uh, some odd years as a firefighter and a flight paramedic in a large urban city on the West Coast and uh, also went and took a bunch of uh, extra training and classes because of the my air medical background in human factors and human factors analysis. I served for a time after I retired from the fire department on a go team and uh, where we went around and analyzed uh, in accidents and uh, during the period when I was going through um, some of my additional training, I ran into Scott Griffith, and Scott and I decided to uh, – Scott, who is the uh, uh, had just uh, retired from American Airlines as the director of safety, um, Scott and I decided to start a company to take some of the principles that we both learned in aviation safety and reliability into healthcare. And because they're wildly different environments, we uh, we, we spent quite a bit of time coming up with a model that, that uh, does that. So now my role is I work with uh, institutions all over the place in Canada and the United States and Trinidad and everywhere, EMS organizations, healthcare organizations, fire departments, um, airlines, uh, and help them institute these processes that we're discussing. My Most of my clients are major healthcare or emergency medical services organizations. So that's Thank what I'm you. doing today. I do a lot of traveling around. That's awesome. And that's why I did not give your background because I knew that you would do much better at that than I would. <laughs> um, so I know today's conversation is is really important. And in my background, which is in healthcare, we talked about root cause analysis a lot. And I know that root cause analysis has been around for a long time. And now we're going to kind of switch that and we're going to talk about collaborative risk reviews. And sometimes it's hard for people to make the switch because it's something that they've done for so long. So what I'd like to start with is if you could talk about the difference between a collaborative risk review and a root cause analysis so that people understand the difference and they can move forward. Oftentimes, we need to take things and improve them, and I think that's what this does. So if you could take us through that, I'd appreciate that, Paul. Yeah, absolutely, Tammy. And, um, you know, as we've discussed in the past, at the risk of, you know, offending people who may do a root cause that process that looks like a collaborative risk review, um, as many of you out there know, there's there's a ton of different ways to do this. Um, so I'm going to talk about what we see in the majority, not the very, very minority of people who are doing it. And root cause has may gone through lots of iterations, as we all know. There's squared, there's cubed, there's 
I don't even know. There's probably some other mathematical designation. And it's along with FMEAs. We see that a lot, too. It's like, well, if it's pro, if it's retrospective, you do a root cause. If it's prospective, you do an FMEA. And none of that's actually true in the scientific world of probability analysis and socio-technical analysis. Um, they were adapted that way in healthcare a long time ago. I'm not really sure why. Maybe because there was no other tools where you see fishbone and all these other things. But they're not what the aviation community uses and they haven't used them. They use probability analysis. And the collaborative risk review is closer to a probability analysis than it is a root cause analysis. So a couple things. Even in the opening when you were mentioning, you know, a way to do investigations is a root cause analysis. Some of the things I mentioned are going to seem a little silly to people, but it's a major cultural shift to get to high reliability. Major cultural shift. Um, First of all, you have to institute a, a just culture program that isn't the old school one that starts with just behavior. We're just, you know, we're going to find out what your duty was or find out what policy you broke or whether you intended to do something. It has to start with how we all saw risk. And that's how collaborative risk reviews start out. They start out with what were the risks involved with this, not just from the hospital's perspective, but from the staff. Secondly, you mentioned, you know, root cause is a way to investigate. We don't even let our clients use the term investigate anymore. They have to use the term analyze. Um, The reason is, is you're not a police officer. You're a healthcare provider, and police officers investigate things. Um, you're and, and investigate just carries with it this. Oh, you're under investigation, instead of let's all sit down and analyze this. And people think this sounds silly, but when you're a frontline staffer, the difference is huge. Words have big meaning, and we know this now because we've instituted this in a lot of organizations. So collaborative risk reviews are analyses; they're not investigations. The other thing is just the term col- uh, root cause. Um, First of all, collaborative risk reviews are not looking for a cause. They're looking for contributors. Cause is direct. A caused B. If I... If you got injured because I hit you in a crosswalk, the cause of your injuries was my car striking you. What we're looking for isn't, you know, what caused your injuries. We know that. That's relatively obvious. What we're looking for is what contributed to this in the realm of how did you drive in the car not see the risks? What systems were in place and were they effective and resilient? Were there performance affecting factors like you were on your phone or you were distracted or you were new to the neighborhood? Were were there behaviors involved? You were going 10 miles an hour over the speed limit or texting on your phone. And we take those and then the analysis of a a root cause is often like, okay, a five why process to get to like what caused it. I don't even know why they came up with five and not four or six, but we do a little exercise that, you know, we learned a long time ago about, you know, you can take five whys and get in the weeds really, really fast. So that whole process has been pretty much debunked. And I know the people who are doing real modern, I would call it style of our RCA, which we still consider to be a second generation process, which is a polite way of saying it's it's an old methodology that's tired. Um, they would say, well, we're not doing five whys anymore. Um, but you're among the 5% that aren't then because 95% of the people we come across are still doing it. As a matter of fact, their software shows it. You know, they'll put up a slides and it'll say, you know, why did this happen? Why did this happen? So there's a, there, there's a lot of differences between the methodologies themselves. Probably one of the most important things is 
RCAs are perceived inside most institutions. And again, you may not be one of these, but inside most institutions as a negative thing. They're going to do a root cause analysis into this because it was a sentinel event. You rarely find them doing RCAs on things that weren't sentinel events, an SRE, right? And that's because the regulator requires them. And a collaborative risk review, you might be doing it on a sentinel event, but as we'll talk about probably a little bit here further, the larger institutions that we're doing this with, the vast majority of risk reviews, there was no event. There was just a risk, and they're not generated by safety, quality, and risk. They're generated by frontline folks who want their want this risk analyzed. So the collaborative risk review is a socio-technical process where you're really trying to find out how did this risk near miss event represent what goes on every day in the hospital that our staff is doing every day. It just happened that there was a hit or a near miss this time, but we're always not doing that double check or we're rarely doing this inventory or whatever it is that created that was one of the contributors to the risk. And then the last part I would say, and there's a lot of other differences, but probably the most other significant one is most RCAs that we have seen come up with mitigation strategies that are system related only. They rarely come up with ones that are human performance related, or if they do, I don't know how many times I've seen training. Well, what we need is more training. You don't, you don't need more training, right? I mean, there's KSAPs, knowledge, skill, ability, proficiencies. If people don't have the knowledge, then certainly train them. But if you have the knowledge, you're just not following the rule, you don't need to be trained. And and this is, but it's an easy, it's the easy button. We'll just hit the easy button, which is training. Um, or they don't address the behaviors. And if they do address the behaviors, they don't have a robust just culture process in place. So it's a punitive measure. They're basing what they're going to do on how severe the outcome was. So these aren't processes that help institutions become more reliable as much as they are processes driven by a regulator that is required when you have an event where someone is injured or there's a near miss or you know an SRE. So flipping the iceberg, as we would say in higher lab is is you're not really examining the sentinel event to find out what happened there. You will find that out in a collaborative risk review. But the meat and potatoes is really trying to find out, like, how does that represent what went on every single day? So those are the major differences between the two. And if you've done RCAs, you'll do great at collaborative risk reviews. There's a couple things. There's some mind shifts and some pivots you have to do. The facilitation of a collaborative risk review is much harder than a RCA because there's a lot more people involved and that has a potential for more conflict. And there's a lot of work trying to keep people focused on what the contributors are. But as far as fact gathering and those sorts of things, there's not a tremendous amount of difference, as you know, because you're familiar with both processes. And if you're good at RCA, you'll be probably pretty good at collaborative risk review. So, Paul, that brings me to something I'd like to expand on because you mentioned when we've done something so, so long, like the root cause analysis, and really traditionally the root cause analysis has been because there's been an event or there's mm-hmm. been something. But another shift to this, and you touch base on it, if we could expand a little bit, is with the collaborative risk review, it's more than 
Sentinel events or events that have happened. Expand on that and where the organization will eventually be with collaborative risk review, like a percentage. You know, we do do those events versus what we do with risk. So can you talk about how, because root cause analysis, our brain is with an event, right? Right. But the collaborative risk review, we're going to change that mindset and it's more than that. Can you expand on that piece? Yeah, absolutely. And, um, I'll preface it by saying that when we first go in and you're talking to an organization about this, the concept sort of freaks them out when they see the statistics because everybody's already overworked. And when they find out how many collaborative risk reviews are done inside a a hospital or a healthcare institution or EMS organization, they're, they're a little bit scared at first. So let's first of all, just back up and talk about what's the real purpose of doing these events, these, these reviews. The real purpose is you're trying to mitigate future risk. Now, if you're, if you're an attorney, an insurance company, or the media, you're not really concerned about that. What you're concerned about is what we call the right side of harm. After harm's occurred, after bang, you're in there going, I want to know what happened and who we should blame and throw under the bus, right? That's the, and so, but if you're in a hospital and we find people in hospitals and that's their attitude, they're like, well, we, I've had risk managers say, well, there's no risk here. I'm like, what do you mean? Well, we're not going to get sued. And their risk perception is 100% associated with is there a fiduciary responsibility that we, you know, did this or didn't do that instead of, well, wait a minute, there were 22 things that went wrong in this process. Yeah, but we're not going to get sued. So that's why risk, we start with risk because everybody's perception of what the risk is, is wildly different. And then once you start into this process, um, you, you go, well, how do you, how do you address it? Well, let me give you an example from one of the larger hospitals inside the networks that do this. So MGB, Mass General Brigham, um, one of the larger hospitals that's been doing it for a while is Brigham and Women's, which is, I don't know, probably 900 to 1,000 beds. They, when we first started with them, they were doing between 25 and 35 RCAs a year. Again, investigations, right? And they were all associated with like sentinel events that required some sort of action. And there might have been two or three that were generated by a forward-thinking team leader who was like, hey, I want an analysis done on this. In 2023, they are likely to go over 200 based on the uh, uh, collaborative risk reviews, based on the pace they're going now. What's interesting is there's still only the same number of SREs. There's still only maybe 20, 25 of these SREs that have to be reported. All these other ones, 160, 180, whatever it's going to end up being, are being generated by frontline providers. So for instance, when they go into RL Solutions, uh, and I'm a nurse in, you know, on orthopedics, and nothing happened, I just saw a risk. I say, wait a minute, we're, we just got another job to do, and we're not doing this double check we're supposed to do all the time consistently. That's creating a risk for my patients. So I entered into RL, and then at the very end, by the way, they have an expedited process, because everybody knows one of the barriers to reporting is how long it freaking takes. And then you get to the end and there's a really quick thing. Is this a red, yellow, or green event? Now, if it's a green event, green means you are ta- you and your supervisor are going to take the responsibility to use the high reliability taxonomy to go through the risk event. What were the risks? What were the system issues? What were the performance factors? What were the behaviors? And analyze it and send those results up to whoever you do, your reliability team in, in our organizations we work with. If it's a yellow event, you're still going to take responsibility to do it, but you're indicating that you want at the elbow support. So the yellow events get tagged by the reliability 
liability team and they call you and they're like, you know, hey, we need to do this. Now, the other interesting thing is we'll go into institutions and an RCA will be done two weeks, a month after the event. That ain't the way it works inside a high reliability organization. That's like having a plane crash and the NTSB going, you know, we'll be there in six weeks or so to look at the smoke and hole in the ground. Nobody remembers, you know, what exactly happened unless it was a really horrid event. And and it's really hard to get your statistics. So in some of these institutions like this one, a green event, you've got to analyze it within one week, a yellow event within three days, a red event. When you click red, it means I need someone from the reliability team, the SMEs from safety quality risk or whatever to come help me or to do this event. This is this is a biggie. And and by the way, sometimes people mislabel them and there's a whole process we won't get into today to go through go through that to make sure that they're labeled correctly and people are getting the information correct. But the feedback loop is what's really important. By doing this, they're not only participating actively in this collaborative risk review, they're actively part of the solutions and the feedback. Now, in an RCA, I might come up with a solution. Let's do another double check. Let's do this. And those are rarely stress tested on the front line. In other words, we just say, well, this will stop if we do X. If we do this, and we're always adding rules or doing training, what we need is a new policy. We see this all the time. We need a, we need a memo, a policy, an email, a sign, none of which work very well because they're behavioral uh, uh, strategies. So a, a collaborative risk review would ask, well, is this sign going to be read six months from now? Is this, is this additional double check? If you're going to audit, well, we're going to audit, make sure they do that double check. Well, as you and I have mentioned before, how much time does that take? You know, I mean, and this is one of the things that we get into. A real quick example, Tammy, before we, you know, kind of pivot is one of the hospitals I work with had a, phys- a group of physicians in a room and the the one of the executives was all upset. And he said, I'm tired of you guys not washing your hands. We had a, a one of those, what do you call it? A secret shopper? Is that what they call it? I don't know. Something like that. Yes. And, secret. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so they were going around and they had like a 70% hand washing on rounding. And 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 he was like, you know, it takes three minutes to find a sink. It takes two minutes to wash your hands the right way. I just don't understand, blah, blah, blah. And then are there any questions? So I put my hand up. I got a question, but it's not for you. It's for the docs in the room that do rounding, the nurses. And I turned around and I said, how many of you do rounding? And most of the hands went up. And I said, how much time do you have? And they, the average was about an hour. And I said, how many patients do you see? And it was like eight or 10 patients each that they were seeing. And I said, okay, so let's do a little bit of math. I'm not a good math guy, but let's just figure this out. It takes three minutes to sink find and two minutes to hand wash for every patient. You've got 10 of them. That's 50 minutes of sink finding and hand washing. And you've got one hour to do rounding. So you've got one minute per patient to ask questions. The rest of that time, you're freaking washing your hands. And of course, everybody started to laugh. But this is what a collaborative risk review does is put some real some reality behind these suggested fixes. Like, are they actually going to be executed? Are they going to work? Do they conflict with anything? Are they aligned with your other policies and procedures? You can't just wing out new policies. We call these bolt-ons. We see it all the time. You know, well, the regulator's happy because we just said we're going to do another double check. But the front line is rolling their eyes. They're like, we don't have extra minutes in a cabinet up here. We can't just go find time to do this. And that's why this risk review process is so much more valuable than the standard RCA is it it's much more engaging for the frontline staff that was a great example loved it loved it because sometimes you're right 
we put things in and we say, why can't we just wash our hands? But we're not looking at the time also. So that was a great example. Um, One thing also to clarify, because you've touched on, you know, frontline staff, et cetera, are going, I don't have... I don't have time to do it. I don't have time to do a collaborative risk review. I don't have time. Who leads and participates in the collaborative risk review? Great question. The frontline actually finds time, interestingly, to do a lot of these because they're fascinated and interested in running the process themselves. So green and yellow events, ones that are relatively low risk. um, And by the way, you might be examining something you think is low risk and you find out, OMG, this is really horrible. I mean, we've got a huge risk here we didn't even see. That happens. But green and yellow ones are run by the frontline supervisors who we train in the methodology. Now, we don't train them to be so subject matter experts. We just train them in how to use the reliability response guide and other tools so they can lead the conversation with their staff. These generally take 30 minutes or so at the unit level. They'll often do it on shift change or during a a shift meeting and they'll burn through it and they just fill out a template. Here's what we found. Here's our feedback. Here's what we think might work or, you know, that sort of thing. They also probably, sorry to interrupt you. you No, that's good. Yeah. (laughs) But I'm thinking they probably appreciate that you're listening to them, that I, hey, we see a risk here and I'm worried. I'm worried that something's going to happen from this process that I'm doing. And they probably appreciate that someone's looking at the risk and also to the point to say, like what you were talking about, the hand washing, that that we're not just being able to say, here's the problem, just do it. It's bigger than that, right? You're right. Like the time on that one. So I'm sure that they probably appreciate the fact that you're listening. I see a risk here. It hasn't come to an event yet, but I see a risk. And they probably appreciate the fact that someone's paying attention to that and helping so that risk doesn't become an event and that they're involved in. Absolutely. Because there's no one who knows it better than those who are closest to the work, number one. And number two, they're the ones that are going to tell you whether or not your solution is bogus, right? They're going to go, that's a great solution. If I had an extra five minutes every hour to do that, that's a great idea, but I don't have that. So what's plan B? The other thing is, is um, why are they so enthusiastic about doing this? And by the way, I mean, wildly enthusiastic. You see these groups get in there and they have these conversations that they haven't been able to have before is they're leading the conversation. They, they, they know the taxonomy. We teach it to them. And the other part is, is high reliability has a foundational aspect that's rarely talked about. And that is safety, quality and risk are not departments in an HRO. It's everyone's responsibility to be safe, to deliver quality and to manage risk at your own level. Now, I'm not saying we get rid of those departments in a hospital because you don't. What I'm saying is a lot of hospitals we go into and it's like, well, that's the quality department's responsibility. We even see we we even go in and we'll have sentinel events, Tammy, being analyzed by two different departments, not even talking to each other. The quality department's doing an FMEA on it and the risk people are doing an RCA. And I'm like, are you guys doing this together? Oh, no, 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 they do their RCAs, we do our FMEAs. And by the way, the regulator's doing a third one and no one's talking to each other. 
And those are the sorts of things that this is designed to get rid of. Now, the harsh part about this is those departments have to come together. So like when we first went to some of these large hospitals in Boston and even in Tampa, as you've mentioned, um, and I know you've had some Tampa general people on here, is those were separate departments. Risk did their thing, quality did their thing. And now like you go to Brigham and Women's or MGB hospitals, they're a house together, those people. So the risk people and the quality people and the safety people are not only housed together, they're on the team together and they're doing, they're each, they're, they're co-doing these collaborative risk reviews. Our, uh, the risk people doing a collaborative risk review. The quality people, collaborative risk review. <laughs> it's not like they're doing different things. And at first, that's a harsh reality for some of them, right? But they it's amazing how they get together because they see risk completely differently. They come from different aspects of, of risk inside of a hospital. And the quality people see a different risk than the safety people do, and same with the risk folks. So these are really, it's a really fascinating process. It's probably, it was something that was done in a high reliability sort of aviation world a long time ago, but it's it's relatively new concept introduced to most healthcare institutions. We talk about this, and I, I'm I'm sitting here as you're talking, and I'm kind of chuckling in the background because in in my background, which is is mainly in healthcare. I remember those times of different departments doing different things and really how can we not collaborate and come together and and make processes better. So who owns this? And when I mean that is who owns this and who makes sure who who ensures that this is followed through. So we we've done a collaborative risk review and that we make sure that we followed through with that. Who owns it, if you will? That's a great question. Um, I'm going to tell you that it's variable depending on the institution and their resources and the way they're made up. So the critical access hospitals we work with, the little ones, they have a different structure. They, they you know, you, you might have four hats on if you're in a hospital like that versus a big one like TGH or, or MGB. Um, typically, the, pers- the, the person or people who own it are the reliability team leaders. So when we go in, we build a group of subject matter experts, not in what's being examined, like surgery or orthopedics. We build a team of subject matter experts in the methodology of how to do this. So you could you could examine a plane crash, even if you have know nothing about planes. We're going to teach you how do you do this methodology to look for contributors? What's the and how do you run a collaborative just culture process? Those people have a team leader. That team does. The team leader in most organizations is the person who is responsible for ensuring that the feedback loops are closed, et cetera, et cetera. It's typically a reallocation of resources that are currently present. There's a few organizations who've hired new staff to do this, but that's relatively unusual. Um, Usually it's just a little bit of shifting of some responsibilities and things. Now, we also have organizations where, like, for instance, the vice president of quality or indoor safety is the person responsible, not the team leader. Um, It's very flexible, but there has to be, as you mentioned, there's got to be someone responsible for ensuring that those loops get closed. So for a quick example, at the Brigham, they have a weekly meeting of the reliability team that takes probably 45 minutes to an hour. Most of it's done by Zoom. And they quickly review not just the cases that their team is looking at, the red ones, but they also quickly review the green and yellow reports that have come in. Who's, who's, Who's assigned to the feedback loop? 
who's making sure these are closed out um, and that sort of thing. And the other interesting part about this is it requires some rigor at the executive level. A real common piece to pivot briefly is people will come up with systemic or performance or behavioral fixes and they send them off and they're like, well, I'm done. I've washed my hands of it. I've told you we need a new Franistan in the ED. And if you don't buy the new Franistan, then we're we're done. I mean, that's the only way to fix this. Well, if that's actually what's going to fix the problem as a new piece of equipment or a new FTE, a lot of organizations that moves up the food chain and we never hear what happens or what we hear is executives saying, that's a great idea, go fix it, but they don't resource it. So the hospitals that do this, they, they have to have an executive process to vet the mitigation strategies and they get three choices, which is an interesting dilemma for them. Choice number one, read the response that the, the mitigation strategies have been forwarded, accept them and resource them. So if you're going to accept them and you're going to say, yes, we think this fixes risk, you have to budget for and resource those fixes. That's choice number one. Choice number two is I don't have enough information. I want to send it back and you re give, do more research. They're only allowed to do that once because that would be the de facto default mode for most healthcare organizations. We just want you to keep studying this. We don't want to pay for it. We don't want to accept the risk. Just keep looking into it and push that can down the road. Because choice number three, which is the most difficult, is reject the suggestions and accept the risk. And this is hard because Healthcare organizations, we they're walking around with this zero stuff on them with zero, zero. Well, they've turned zero from an from a uh, an aspiration into an expectation. They expect zero, and I'm like. I just had a conversation with the hospital the other day. They have to do this check to find out for violence, right? It's like, um, so you have to ask a patient, you know, are you, do you feel safe at home? Something like this in the ED. And they're like, we're only at like 98%. I'm like, bravo, that's amazing. They're like, no, we need to be at 100%. I'm like, you won't be. There is no place on earth where you're going to be at 100%. And if you are, someone's doctoring the books. So <laughs> you need to set a target that's below 100. And that's really, really hard for healthcare to do. The aviation client, are like, yeah, we're going to crash a plane every billion flight hours. That's just kind of our statistical model. That's what we build our risk problem to. We don't like it. It's bad. It's horrible. It's not good for business, but that's, we can't be perfect. And that's as good as it gets. And healthcare is like, no, 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 that's, that's unacceptable. So this conversation between what's an acceptable level of risk really comes down to what are you willing to resource to manage that risk? Because if you're not willing to spend the money, you got to accept the risk. And that's even at home, right? I don't have the I money agree. to buy that car. I, I can't buy that car. I don't have the money. Well, then you're going to accept a risk that that car is not as safe as the one you want to buy. That's just part of the world we live in. Exactly. We have to, and, and hospitals need to realize that. And that's one thing that that collaborative just culture does is <clears throat> is is an analyzing that risk. Also, there's there's two things that I want to. I'm an I'm an analogy person. I I do better if I know my purpose and and have some type of analogy. You mentioned earlier about flipping the iceberg. So and and that was one of them. Many many people think that I don't have the time to do this. This takes time. But you got to look at it from another perspective. And I think that's another mind shift that we have to make going for high reliability and just culture. We have to shift our mindset. And one of the things with collaborative risk review 
is many facilities and not just hospitals, many facilities look at what has already happened. Mm-hmm. So we've already have an event. One thing that if we look at the iceberg is we want to flip that and collaborative risk review is a is a key key point in this. Yes, we want to look at what's happened, but this also gets us and you touched on it earlier to look at all the things that have not happened. And yeah. so sometimes yeah. people have trouble thinking of that. They they want to live they want to live in what's happened. But We've got to switch our mindset to think, no, let's flip that. Yeah, we still have to look at those. We don't ignore those. But let's get to the point where we're looking at the things that have not happened yet, but are the risk so that we we have less events because we've been looking at the risk, right? Yeah, so, let me give so you a couple So we want to switch examples. that a little bit. And, and I think that, that if we could switch our mindset to that a little bit, right. like you mentioned about root cause analysis, this is old. It's time to move on. We got something better. Let's move on. And and that's what I think collaborative risk review uh, is a key point. We've got to switch where we're not only looking at events, but let's look at those risks. And I really think facilities want that. I mean, yeah. my background is I wish you would have listened to me when I said, hey, I think we have a risk here. Yeah. Well, let me give you a couple examples. I think that if you like analogies, that'll drive the point home. First of all, if you think proactive, reactive in the oldest old healthcare community or the way it's done a lot today is that's the RCA FMEA mode. If you think that if what if you if you, you know we were to walk in and we say we have one model that'll work for both. So this model will work both proactively and retrospectively. You can analyze a retrospective incident, which you do a lot using this, plus you can use it. So let me give you an example. First of all, um, well, let's take a proactive one. So one of the major hospitals we work with during COVID had already been doing this for quite a while, and they had this this risk came up. So they're having a conversation. Here's the risk. We are required in the next month to open an, an entire group of pop-up vaccination clinics. And they, they used the exact same taxonomy. So here's what they said. What are the risks of doing this? And they went through the whole list of like different providers that are doing this that don't normally run clinics. There's no scanning at these pop-up clinics like there is at the hospital. There's And they went through and they listed all those. Then the next step was, what will the competing priorities for these people be? And there was a conversation. Then the next step was, what systems can we put in place to manage these risks risks that we've just talked about. Proactively, these are the risks we can see. What systems can we put in place? Then the next question was from a performance factor. What training education do we have to have? What kind of distractions can we anticipate? What sort of fatigue can we anticipate? What on the human performance realm can we anticipate and manage prior to us opening these clinics? And then it went to behaviors. And they were like, what policies and procedures do we expect? What do we expect people to do when they're running or working at these clinics? What are these policies temporary? Are they permanent? What are we going to do? And then what's our sustainment model? How do we know we're doing well? How often do we circle back and check it? That's the high reliability, collaborative high reliability process following the sequence. Now, that's entirely proactive. They hadn't even opened a clinic yet. 
They, did they have some issues? Absolutely. But every time an issue came up, they were like, oh, that was an unseen risk. What can we do? Do we have? And that's proactive use versus retrospective. This was a red event. You're using the exact same. Now, a quick little analogy, as I tell people, is this isn't a work strategy. When we teach our SMEs, I'm real clear. If you think you're going to do this at work and not do it at home, you will never become a subject matter expert, right? And you know, you know this. It's like, can you use it on your spouse, right? Or oh, can you, I'm chuckling. Yeah, yeah, he's already said. Would you stop? Yeah, no. And yeah, Doctor Oda, who you've talked to, you know, he's the same way. His wife is like, I'm done talking about reliability. But I tell people like, my older son, and he knows I tell this story. You know, um, I got a text one day from school, and it's like your son's bringing home a letter. And this wasn't the son that's going to bring home an academic, you know, excellence award. Right. So I go upstairs and I knock on his door. I'm like, hey, son, I, I need to see the letter. And of course, everybody knows what he says. If you ask parents, I'm like, what, what did he say? And everybody in the audience is always like, what letter? Like you got a dozen letters today and he had to sort through them or something. Right. So. Right. I'm the, I look at his letter and he got an assignment in late. Now, in the old days, it would have been like, all right, you know, you're grounded. Here's, but I actually went through and I'm like, all right, let's try this. What risk is there in turning in a late assignment? And we had a conversation. Then I said, what system do you have when you get complex assignments? Do you pick study buddies? Do you set aside? There was no system. Well, there's a part of this you didn't understand. Did you need a tutor for part of it? Was there a performance aspect? Well, there was that. And then we went to the behaviors. Did you choose to do something like playing, you know, video games instead of going to the library? And the interesting part is, is that when you when you start thinking like that, when people first see the method, they're like, oh, this is complex. But the moment you start doing it, you're like, this is not hard once you get that embedded, if you know what I'm saying. So I don't know if that's helpful to give it that example. It is, and I think, I think the thing with, with what we're talking about is it's a mind shift. When mm -hmm. someone does something repeatedly, you can take millions of examples. When someone does something repeatedly, they continue doing it, and it's hard for them to make the mind shift to change. Um, yes. And so I think that's what this is. But when you do and when you see it, I say you cannot unsee it. You cannot unsee this and you, you carry it over into your, like you said, in, into your personal life, because I'm always asking family members, are, are you OK with taking that risk? And they look at me like, dang it, she's bringing that up again. She's right. She's <laughs> well, given me the responsibility the to, to risk, evaluate right? and, and yeah. talk about risk because I'm like, well, I really want to take that I, risk. I, I'm a terrible risk person. I mean, Scott and I always talk about this. Scott's to take risk is like he went for a long walk. And we always yeah. joke around about that, right? It's like, I have a brother who base jumps. I think he's an idiot. <laughs> he's like, well, you ran into burning buildings for 30 years. You know, who's the stupid one? And I'm yeah, like, yeah. I could run out and you can't unjump. Like gravity that's... doesn't work that way, right? <laughs> but you, everybody sees it differently. And that's, as you mentioned, the most important part of this, right? It's like... Yeah, this 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 can change completely. Change another another thing that and Paul, I know we're going to go over time, but you and I could talk for hours, and I'd like to have you come back another time because I I would like to talk about biases and how that breaks down into this and other topics. But the other thing that I I want to bring up before we close, we talked about flipping the iceberg. I think it's important to talk about another thing we need to flip with that iceberg, if you will, is the time we utilize. Now, we touched on this a little bit earlier. P 
people, when we bring them new things, often go, I don't have time to do that. I don't have time to do it. I don't have time to do it. But once they do it, that is another flip, if you will, of the iceberg. Because when you do the collaborative risk review instead of a root cause analysis, you evaluate many things that um, improve processes, for instance, reduce risk, and eventually it saves time, right? Right. Because we've evaluated and we found things and it actually saves time in the long run. Would you agree with that? Do you have, I'm I'm going to put you on the spot. Do you have some kind of an example or something? Because I do think that many times that can be a barrier with institutions, with organizations that they say, I don't have time to do this. Well, if you put a little bit of time and effort into this, you are going to save time. You're going to save and prevent events, if you will. Can you kind of expand on that for me? I can. Um, briefly, let's the, – the interesting part about this is it's um, – it because it involves frontline – heavy frontline participation um, in the solution-building process uh, for the events or the risks, and now you're seeing what the risks are, you actually are creating robust processes that – that work. And the reason it saves, so everybody wants to know, well, what's the ROI? You know, am I going to see something next quarter? It's like, no, you're going to, you can't measure what doesn't happen. But what you can do is start seeing uh, people become way more engaged in coming up with solutions that actually work. So one of the interesting real sidebars, and this is going to seem like maybe it's not related, but it is, we are trying to understand behavior. And we get people who mix up the difference between condoning it and understanding it. So it's like, I want to know why the person broke the rule. And I have supervisors tell me, I don't care why they broke it. They knew it was a rule. They knew that it was, they were wrong. And here's the punishment. And I said, wait a minute. If you don't want to know why someone broke a rule, you have zero hope of proactively managing this system. None. Because you don't care why they did it. And it turns out most of the time they're not breaking the rule because they're bad people. They're they're not following the policy because they have a competing priority and they see the risk of breaking your rule as lower than doing something else. Now that conversation Tammy, leads to a great deal of initial problem solving that makes the downstream fix not only work way better, it means you don't have to revisit the problem over and over again. And that's where you start saving time. Or you get hospitals are like, well, we have lean. Awesome. Lean fits into high reliability perfectly. Lean is a great system builder, but lean has its own issues. For instance, in a lean process, you're like, well, Paul's supposed to do X at step seven. And my question to those people is always like, well, what if Paul doesn't do that? Well, he's supposed to. The rule says he's supposed to. Yeah, but what if Paul decides he wants to do Y at step? Well, what if Paul forgets to do step seven? What's the capture opportunity? And and they look at you with that deer in the headlights look. Lean is an amazing process. But remember, it has to include the probability that the human is going to perform the way you want them to perform. And that's what this is about. It's not just systemic probability. It's human probability. And we need to understand behavior and performance better in order to understand how we can build a better system around that sort of thing. I don't know if that helps, but that's kind of where I'm at with that. It did. And we're we're 
getting over with out time. of time. So yes, you go. I, I would love to expand on this, and I'd like to have you back on a future episode if you're willing to do that. I'm glad to love to. Could, it's fun to talk about. I know it is, and we could probably talk for hours. So um, with this, we're going to close. I, I think we were able to, in in some instances, kind of. Um, debunk a couple of myths here too in in our discussions which was really good and, and one of the goals that I wanted to do so for those of you listening we um, my next podcast I'm going to interview some individuals from Tampa general and um, uh, different than we interviewed last time um, the other thing that I want to offer is for those out there that are listening and would like for us to expand on something in a future uh, episode please Please email me at Tammy, T-A-M-M-Y dot Allen, A-L-L-E-N, at DNV.com um, with your suggestions or maybe something you felt like, you know what, I'd like for you to expand on a certain point. Please let me know, and I can do that in a future episode. Thank you, Paul, so much for joining us today. It's been a pleasure, as always, to talk with you. You are you are such a knowledge base, and I learn something every every time that we talk. So, appreciate you being on here. Glad you're off the road this week. That's awesome. You yeah, can... it's nice to be off the road. Well, thank you so much for the invite, um, mm -hmm. and I'm looking forward to talking to you again about some of this stuff. Okay, perfect. Thank you, Paul. And until next time, um, everyone stay safe and take care.